I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We are live at the International Leadership Association Conference, and I am delighted that Joanne Chula, a Lifetime Achievement Award winner, is with us. She's the Professor of Leadership Ethics and Director of the Institute of Ethical Leadership at Rutgers Business School. So what do you think about ethical leadership? A lot of people ask the question, well, what is ethical leadership? To tell you the truth, my research question is not that at all. In a way, it's a kind of peculiar question because ethical leadership wouldn't be much different than being an ethical person, right? You're honest, you're caring, you tell the truth, you're just, you're fair. So the interesting question for me and my setting of leadership is, why is it difficult to be an ethical leader? That is an interesting question. Yeah. If you think about that question, the ethical challenges of leadership are far more interesting to study because if you know why it's difficult to be an ethical leader and what are the pitfalls, you know, I look at history very long range. What are the same dumb things and unethical things leaders have been doing forever and ever? When it comes to leadership, there's, there maybe are a handful that are just completely amoral mm-hmm. or, or maybe sociopaths. There are high levels of narcissism in a lot of mm-hmm. leaders. So none of this is really new, new. in history. <laughs> yeah. There are all of those sorts of people. But I think on a daily basis in politics and in business and mm-hmm. in other organizations, most leaders are really, they're ordinary human beings and we're highly fallible as human beings. None of us are perfect. We all do dumb things. And by asking what makes it difficult to be an ethical leader, you are actually asking the question, what is ethically distinctive about being a leader? So let me step back and, and unpack that for you. So for example, we have fields of ethics called medical ethics and legal mm-hmm. ethics. And all of those fields look at the particular ethical challenges of someone who works in that area. So if you're a doctor, it might be the ethical challenge of you know who gets the liver transplant. Mm-hmm. All right, and there's all sorts of intricacies involved in that. And ordinary people don't face those questions. But when we look at leaders, so I want to say, well, what are the distinctive ethical features of Mm -hmm. leaders? So let me give you some examples. First, one of the most interesting things about leaders is leaders are responsible for things they don't do. We're responsible for all the people around us that do things. That's right. But say you're the leader of an organization and some idiot in your organization decides to do something that causes a huge scandal, maybe it harms people, et cetera, and you know nothing about it, and it's a huge organization, so you don't actually even supervise that person. There's a sense in which you're responsible for that, and you cannot step back and say, well, I didn't know anything about it, right? So leaders are responsible for things they don't do. On the bright side of it, you have some brilliant people working for you, and say you're not really a very good leader. But when that brilliant person makes a great discovery or a great product, you get all the praise for it. So in terms of leadership, a key factor of leadership is being responsible. But you have to take the good with the bad. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case in ordinary life. I mean, because to be responsible in ordinary life, you have to actually be an agent. You actually have Mm -hmm. to have had some causal connection to what occurred. So that's one kind of thing. But then there are other things that happen with leaders, and they include the fact that sometimes leaders have to do bad things to do good things. So what's an example of that? Let us say that someone in a corporation has to make the decision to lay people off. So, you know, they have to do that for the good of the organization. Mm -hmm. 
there are other cases where, you know, in politics, you have to deal with horrendous dictators. Uh-huh. And sometimes you have to do it to make an agreement that's actually going to be the, for the good uh-huh. people. Okay? And we can see lots of examples of that in politics. And so this is an interesting part of leadership because it's one of the most ethically sensitive. Because what you don't want to do is be in a position where you're constantly having the ends justify the means. And so philosophers have a great name for this. It's called the dirty hands problem. Interesting. I had not heard that phrase. It's a great phrase. It comes from Jean-Paul Sartre, who wrote a book. Well, it's in one of his plays, actually, not one of his hmm. philosophic works. And he writes about generals. And he says generals have to have blood on their hands. And they should feel the blood on their hands because no general should take people into battle and not have a sense of what they've been responsible for. People die in battles doesn't necessarily mean they're bad, but the dirty hands problem basically says it's really important that you have that awareness when you do bad to do good. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you fall down the slippery slope. So I'm aware that I hurt people mm-hmm. either through my actions like laying off or in some cases cause physical harm, death. Mm-hmm. That's Even exactly if you're right. killing the, quote, enemy, you're taking a human life. Mm-hmm. People with families and everything else. And of uh-huh. course, you know, in the, in the heat of battle and, and doing their jobs, that's, that's what they have that to is do. Their job, I, I get that. I'm. But just think what it does damage. to a doesn't just think what it does to a human being if they don't feel bad about it, or they come to say, oh, "I shouldn't feel bad about it." But you know, these are human beings who have families and everything mm-hmm. else, people who love them, and they're dead. And even even someone like the philosopher Plato, he talks about justice, and he says, "You know, is it just to harm your enemies?" And what Plato argues, or Socrates in the dialogue, he says it's never just to harm anybody because when you harm someone else, you harm yourself. And so you need to really think about that. Now, obviously, if you're talking about the extreme examples of war, there's whole just war theory, which has to do with when is that somewhat acceptable to do? It may be somewhat acceptable and it may even be required. Mm -hmm. Someone's coming to take your home and and hurt your family. But it doesn't mean the person who responds does so without being impacted by that right. response. So having those moral sentiments are, are really a, an important part of leadership, and, and nothing bad should ever be done easily. So that's a very distinct feature. In some ways, we put leaders in positions to actually do the dirty work. Mm-hmm. Those are the hard decisions that leaders have. Mm-hmm. And one of my gripes with a lot of the popular leadership is it's all this happy face oh, leaders are inspiring and they're wonderful and they do these great things and, and they're great communicators. And, and well, I, you know, I don't know who that is, but maybe there's some <laughs> like that. I mean, yes, there are. I mean, not to sound cynical, but the point is leadership is a really, really hard job. And it, it involves a kind of control over the self. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. sometimes it requires really good acting. You know, that, and I've asked this question of, of multiple people uh, that we emphasize authentic leadership. <laughs> and yet there are times that leaders probably should not authentically say what's in, on their mind. That's exactly right. And also, by the way, one of, I have a lot of gripes with authentic leadership. <laughs> and one of the problems with it is just because you're authentic does not mean you're ethical. Mm. I think Vladimir Putin's a very authentic leader. You know exactly where he stands, where he stands and what he is. And he doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to be anything else. So a lot of times in the leadership literature, you have these theories that just because it's a theory of 
some good qualities you want in a leader, mm-hmm. you assume that if people are like this, they're good. And it's not true because you, you confuse style with actual substance in mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of cases, I know as a teacher, I mean, there are some students who drive me nuts and, you know, they come to see me and I can't stand them. <laughs> and, and I'll be darned if I'm actually going to express what I think right. of that. Right. Yeah. And anyone in a leadership role constantly mm-hmm. has to manage that. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to look at some of the uh, Eastern literatures where they talk about the power of silence, that part of their image of leaders is that you know how to keep your mouth shut in a lot of situations, and that can be much more powerful than blah, 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 which we see in a lot of Western leadership. So I can say that keeping my mouth shut has saved me from embarrassment a whole lot of times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where what wants to come out of my mouth is either unkind or I learn later mm-hmm. was inaccurate. Right. Right. Shut up and listen would be my mantra to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and so then the other aspect of, of leaders, because they have a tremendous amount of responsibility, mm-hmm. I've written quite a bit on this notion of ethics and effectiveness. Okay. And so when you're a leader, you got to get the job done. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's part of what you're there for, right? And no one would deny that. But when we look at leaders, we see that there are some leaders who are very effective at getting the job done, but aren't very ethical. And some mm-hmm. leaders are very ethical, but they can't get the job done. Mm-hmm. I used to call the second one the Jimmy Carter problem. Okay. Because Jimmy Carter, when he was president, was I mean, nobody ever doubted him as being a man of great integrity, mm-hmm. uh, but he just couldn't get a darn thing done, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we look at him and we say, okay, very ethical, not so effective. Of course, mm-hmm. later in life, he becomes incredibly effective, right? And then there are other people who seem to get the job done, but when we read about them historically, mm-hmm. we go back in history, we say, well, you know, I mean, even someone like Franklin Roosevelt, mm-hmm. incredible president. But if you look at how he did a few things, they're, they're not exactly on the up and up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the challenge for leaders is how to figure out how to be really effective and ethical at the same time. And that is, is again, gets back to my question. Why is it difficult to be an ethical leader? Because you got to do both. So we've got about 10 minutes left. Mm-hmm. Why is it difficult to be an ethical leader? Assuming it, you're an ethical person. Yeah. Well, there's several things. One of them is this idea of specialness. So obviously your ego starts to get in your way, oh, yeah. right? I'm a really special guy now, and I'm a really special gal now, and I don't have to play by the same rules that everybody else plays mm-hmm. by because I'm mm-hmm. special. People show deference to leaders, and it has a huge effect on them. So part of it is you have to become immune to the position you're in. Okay. In a sense, you have to not let, because the flatterers will come. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is leaders, as they become more successful, become isolated from other people. And when they're isolated, they start to lose perspective on what they do. And losing perspective, part of a, a huge part of leadership is being able to see the big picture. Mm-hmm. And actually, a huge part of making good ethical judgments is being able to see the picture. Because we expect leaders to say, where does this policy or action or thing that I'm about to do fit in with the broader picture of what is going on? That's part of what we we get leaders to do. That's what they're supposed to be doing. So keeping perspective is really important over the arc of time. So mm-hmm. how is this going to play out two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years? Yes. And who are the constituents that we know and who are the constituents we believe will be in contact? Right. And, and it's hard to think about your ethical responsibilities to strangers. 
but a lot of what leaders do, depending on what business, is going to have an effect on people they don't know. Well, pollution as an example. Yeah. What, what are the byproducts of what we create? Right. Where do they go? And what's the half-life of them? That's right. Or the That's full exactly life. right. Yep. And and the other thing is, of course, and we've heard this a lot, is that you know, if you're a leader, you a lot of people go into leadership because they think it's gonna people are gonna like them. Or they're gonna pay more. Or they get well, a lot of them go into it because they're gonna get paid more, but a lot of them <laughs> go into it with this assumption that people are gonna like them or that it's going to be good. So I wanna go back to Plato for a minute because he had the most wonderful thing to say about this. So Plato in the Republic says he's responding to a protagonist who says it's kind of you know, it's good to be king. I like remember that phrase. Yes. <laughs> From the History of the World Part 1. He says, it's good to be king, meaning you get all the goodies, you get, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's to your self-interest to be a leader. And Plato gives this incredible argument for why it's not in your self-interest to be a leader if you're ethical. He says, if you're an ethical leader, it's not in your self-interest because to be fair to people, people are going to get angry with you. So Plato says your friends and your family are going to be mad at you for not giving them special favors, mm-hmm. right? True. You're going to have to put a lot of your self-interest before the interests. Uh, you've got to put everybody's interests before your interests. Yeah. And so if you really think about it, if you're an ethical person who takes on the ethical responsibilities of leadership, it's kind of not a great job. <laughs> well, it feels bad a lot of the time. It does. And so, I mean, and that's not to say there are good times to it. Mm-hmm. So then they ask the question, well, so what would make an ethical person want to be a leader? And I think that's a profound question today, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, look at the people who wouldn't consider running for president. They're the ones we want to run, right? I know. And that's what Plato tells us. He says, what makes an ethical person lead, and you're going to love this, and is fear of punishment. Say, so go, fear of punishment? That you get bad people leading? Yes. The fear of punishment is the fear that someone worse will lead. And he says, that's what drives ethical people to lead. (laughs) This is is not inspirational, by the way. But but no, it's a profoundly interesting thing because it helps us to recognize an intuition that you just had. Mm -hmm. And that is, you notice how in some contexts, and this can be in any, it can be in a community context or whatever, the person who most wants to lead is the one you least want to lead. Yeah. And the reason why, there's a really important reason why, and that is we fear people who want to lead not only are in it for themselves, uh-huh. but they don't understand the moral responsibilities of leadership. So a thoughtful person who wants to lead to bring about serious change mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is not only doing it because worse people might do it, but they're doing it because they want to bring about that change, but they have a reluctance because they understand it's going to be really hard, and people aren't going to like them. And, you know, even as a teacher, you know, the times I'm accused of being unfair are when I don't give a special favor to a student. Mm-hmm. Why can't I hand my paper in next week when it's due today? Well, if fairness means, no, you treat everyone the same. Mm-hmm. But for that student, you're really unfair. So imagine in a much more complex leadership role yeah. what that's going to mean. Yeah, with the student, I, I always claim academic integrity. It's, it lacks, and, but that's back to ethics. Yeah. If I give you more time, and you're getting being graded on the same graded on the same mm-hmm. foundation, then there's a lack of fairness. Right. And I I know there are exceptions to everything, but right. yeah. But it gets back to ethics as mm-hmm. my answer always for can you or can you not? 
Right, right. Being fair and just is going to make being a leader a whole lot harder in some ways. And empathy does too. Yeah, and he's empathy not so does. Emotion mm-hmm. and connection to other human beings. But we usually come with a whole moral toolkit that has several theories in it. So one of them would be empathy. The other one would be, obviously, you can't be a leader without being a utilitarian. You have to think about the greatest good for the relevant parties, the stakeholders involved. I'm not sure everyone does that. No. Okay. <laughs> of course they don't. I'm just describing how they ought to be. And, and, you know, I'm glad you raised that because there's a funny issue in a lot of leadership literature where people are not clear when they are prescribing what leaders should be like and when they're describing what leaders are. Because mm-hmm. we know that not all leaders behave that way. But the, the, the confusion is rather profound, especially in the more popular literatures. Okay. They say, oh, leaders do this and leaders do that. And all you can think of is, well, gee, I have huh. to have Which leaders. Who does <laughs> not Where the ones I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not the ones that I know. So these are just some of the interesting paradoxes that are really distinctive to leadership ethics. And as we build the field, and of course, I'm very interested in leadership in other cultures as well, as we build the field and look at other cultures, Some of these questions, I think, transcend cultural peculiarities. I mean, ethics and effectiveness certainly does. Mm -hmm. Um, How they define or identify what the norms are in that culture may be different. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you you don't ignore those things. But at the same time, there are broad ethical principles about justice and fairness that Mm -hmm. people get everywhere. And when they start saying it's a cultural difference, then you have to really engage them in a conversation about much more general principles where cultures are pretty much the same. Um, in every culture, you can't lie without boundaries, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would lead to total chaos. So there's a lot of things about sustainable behavior in a human community that are actually ethical things. And if we don't behave that way or society doesn't behave that way, it may be an unsustainable culture. And we've seen this, actually, anthropologists have actually seen cultures that have had behaviors that were unsustainable. I mean, you know, behaviors where people randomly were killing each other. Well, you're just not going to stay around long unless you've got rules and regulations about when you can kill people. Yeah, basic law and order yeah, kind of ideas. And some cultures do allow killing of people yeah. in certain... Yeah, we are, and the, the rules and regulations are different. Like, I mean, we have capital punishment mm-hmm. in some states here. People in other parts of the world think that's horrendous. And mm-hmm. certainly a lot of people in America think it's horrendous. But we allow that. We allow people to be killed. And there was a rule and a framework and a construct mm-hmm. that is not always generally approved of, but at least understood. Right. It's perceived. So we see that as just because it's procedural justice. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about becoming an ethical leader, what does it mean? How do I get there? Mm-hmm. Am I there? Do I think I'm there. I think, mm-hmm. I'm a, I think I'm a good person and I t- try to do the right thing. Although we're talking about some areas where people may not even have considered, am I doing that? Is there a way to assess and is there a way to develop? Well, in in part of what I've been talking about in development, and certainly when I work with um, businesses and I worked with a lot of government agencies, I worked Mm -hmm. with military groups, when I look at it, part of it is this assessment of, have I fallen into any of these pitfalls? Mm -hmm. Have I fallen into any of these traps? Or am I falling into them? And then the question of how do I keep from falling into those traps? Okay. So I would start with the baseline assumption that someone is a fairly decent human mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so we take all the psychopaths right, out of right. it. <laughs> and, and with that baseline assumption, as a human being, what kinds of disciplines do I need for myself uh-huh. to keep me trying to be fair to people and filling my responsibilities and obligations to the various stakeholders that are affected by my actions? Uh-huh. And I think if, you, if you're thoughtful about those things, and you also have people around you who help you. I mean, leaders don't lead alone. Right. It should never be lonely at the top. It often is, but it should not be. That's where you make bad decisions. Because the problem is with ethical decision-making is that you can make really bad decisions if you don't have someone around to keep things in perspective and offering the things that you haven't considered. And, uh, and that's often a person within the organization and or a spouse does that. Absolutely. Partner often give us feedback. Or kids. I don't know. Or your kids. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's nobody's their job in front of their kids, you know? Gives you perspective. So if you were to recommend one book or article, what would that be? Well, a book that I really like that I think is good for a more general audience, a thoughtful audience, would be a book called Reverence by a man named Paul Woodruff. Paul is he's a classicist and a philosopher. And in the ancient world, in Greece, Greece and China, there was one virtue that was fundamental to leadership, and that was the virtue of reverence. Hmm. And they said that's the virtue that keeps leaders from acting like gods, because it's the virtue that makes leaders aware that they are only part of a larger whole. And it's a beautiful book. It's got very readable. It's got Eastern ideas, Western ideas, and wonderful applications to a variety of occupations. Joanne, it has been such a pleasure. We could do this for hours but you've got things to do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope that you will be back on the show at some time because mm-hmm. it's such an important topic always, and especially right now when we're seeing more breakdowns. Maybe we're just seeing them more, but we're having breakdowns across our society, and it has to impact just confidence in our leadership overall. Mm-hmm. And I think there are mostly good people trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And we're not getting there. Right. So, so there were, it's a field that is hugely impactful. And we've got a lot of opportunities for improvement. Absolutely. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome. We are talking to Lifetime Achievement Award winner Keith Grant. Keith started his career as a blue-collar worker and, among other things, taught karate. I did. Yes. Mm. Then he got his doctorate at Oxford. He taught leadership in five UK universities. So first is, tell us, how did you obviously did big things to win a Lifetime Achievement Award? I think I avoided lots of mistakes. That's the <laughs> best thing to do. We, we know that success is based upon avoiding mistakes rather than making great things happen. So how did I become an academic or how did I end up in leadership field? Let's start with leadership. You went from doing a number of blue collar jobs. Yeah. I got a PhD at Oxford. Yeah, it's just an accident. The whole thing is my whole life has been an accident. <laughs> I've never had a plan in my entire life. And it's just you end up in strange places. So I left school, didn't go to university for various reasons. Part of that being expelled from school, that didn't help. <laughs> and not getting on with the teachers. So there was something in there about not yeah. getting on with authority. I'm also an, an army brat. Okay, so my as father, am I. My father was in the British Army for okay. hundreds of years. So I have an interesting, strange tension between myself and the military mm-hmm. and authority. 
mm-hmm. and dissent and all that kind of stuff. This is not a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> but my whole life is trying to work out my head. Anyway, so I left school, didn't go to university, got loads of jobs, got married, ended up, I had about um, about 18 jobs in about 10 years, most of which in the end was in the post office in the UK. And then I ended up as a um, trade union official within the post office union. Uh, and then I got really bored. And this coincided with the beginnings of the Open University in the UK, which is a um, open enrollment distance learning university based about 1975, I think it was first um, started. So I thought that would be a good way to recover my non-existing university career. <laughs> so I started that. I enjoyed that so much. I went to uh, York University to mm-hmm. do politics. And then I went to Oxford to do my doctorate. So, And then I've been as an academic ever since, really. Uh, so 30 years as an academic. So 10 years doing jobs that I really didn't need to do and 30 years doing a job that's been really interesting. So what was what is your proudest accomplishment in university, in teaching, in leadership space? I'm probably surviving five deans without being <laughs> destroyed by them. Now, I've tended to move around universities quite a lot. Um, I think this is part of the dissent problem. Okay. <laughs> that um, I, I decide that um, I no longer want to work with certain individuals, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm lucky enough to work in the field of leadership, which has mm-hmm. been expanding um, ever since I've been in the field, really. So there's always been a job available somewhere. So I've never been restricted in what I can do. I just go somewhere else, start again, so, where they don't know me. <laughs> so this descent theme yeah. seems like it's run through your whole career. Yeah, I think it probably has. I I'm, I don't know that I... I was never really um, a conscious dissenter. Okay. Things just kind of happened, and then on reflection, you look back and... Mm-hmm. When I explained to my wife that it was none of my fault, she says, I think it was. And <laughs> if it happened too many times, there might be a theme. Yeah. So I think that's why I got into leadership, because I've always been intrigued by the way that people don't dissent, why people put up with things, mm-hmm. and why is it that some people don't put up with things, and why do we end up in strange places, and all that, all that kind of stuff. Although I didn't start, I mean, my PhD is not on leadership. My PhD was on labor history, really, and looking at the post office between the wars, uh, the industrial relations, the union movement. And then I then I got a job as an academic, and I taught uh, sociology of work, mm-hmm. organizational behavior. Uh, and then at some point, so I did that for six years at Brunel University, and then I came back to Oxford University. And somebody said, um, did I teach leadership? And I said, well, I've got a couple of undergraduate lectures on leadership, so who is it you, you want me to teach? And so it's an executive group. And I said, well, the way that I teach leadership is not really for executives. It's more a kind of theoretical, mm-hmm. critical approach to leadership. Looking at the history, it's not. I look at the contemporary aspects. Mm-hmm. And whoever was said this to me, said, oh, sir, that's a shame because we, uh, we pay you £500 for an hour's work. And in those days, I've got three kids, no money, and a big debt. So I thought, <laughs> so, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I'll go do it. So I did it, and uh, I was quite surprised by the fact that they actually thought what I was talking about was quite interesting, as opposed to completely irrelevant. And then when I looked at the the general field in those days, this was 30 years ago, there weren't really any British academics looking at leadership. There were lots of American academics, but not many British ones, and certainly no European ones that I knew of. So then I thought, well, this is interesting, because this is a topic that allows me to go wherever I like in terms of looking at ancient Greeks or contemporary business leaders, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. I can, 
I can legitimately do whatever I like in the field. So it gave mm -hmm. me a massive freedom of focus. Okay. That I that, that no constraints whatsoever. Nobody else in the UK was writing in the field. So I thought, well, let's let's try this as my field, my niche, mm -hmm. and and basically that's how it that's how it happened. So no real. No real long-term plan. I just fell into it, and it just happened to be the right place to fall into. You know, it's fascinating how we teach kids that they should have a plan, mm. and in retrospect, most of us did not. No. Or didn't have the plan that we ended up yeah. pursuing. And I think that's something to do with our levels of anxiety, that we really don't like the unknown. We don't like to remain anxious until we seek answers, and we seek plans, and we seek organizational structures. And those, I think, are just anxiety-reducing mechanisms. They don't actually serve a function other than that. That's really where the, my field of expertise, such as it exists, is in looking at those problems that we're really anxious about and don't like to look at or don't have a solution to and would rather not look at too deeply because that might involve us in doing something. So MBAs, for example, are full of what I would call tame problems and Tame solutions. So we know how to fix these kinds of problems. 80% of our lives are spent addressing problems that we know what the solution is. So how to keep the lights on, how to keep the traffic system working, mm -hmm. how to make the food work. Those are tame problems because we know how to deal with them. And they have a process, they have a standard operating procedure. And I associate those with what I'm called management. Mm -hmm. What I'm really interested in is those problems that we don't have a solution to and we don't even know what the problem is sometimes. So it's about how you manage with how you fix climate change, how you stop violence in schools, how you stop drugs and communities. Mm -hmm. And basically, we don't know. We don't even know what the problems are sometimes. So for example, if is the, is the problem, I was talking about knife crime, is knife crime the problem or is knife crime a manifestation of a much deeper, more serious issue that we don't even understand. So what we do is we focus on the symptom, we focus on right. the knife, so we ban knives, for example, mm -hmm. and we search people all the time. But that doesn't actually fix the problem because that actually isn't the problem. The problem is something much deeper in the community, and we mm -hmm. don't even know what that problem is. So in mental that, health. And yes, exactly. So that, so that would be a wicked problem, uh, and wicked problems either don't have solutions or don't have easy, easy solutions. Mm -hmm. And it usually requires a collaborative and a collective response mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. So the, the role of the decision maker, the leader in this case, is not to pretend that they have the answer, but to get the collective to collectively address this and think about, we may not be able to fix this, but we can make it less significant. Mm -hmm. Let's think about what we can do that would make it less significant. So it's a way of recognizing these kinds of uh, levels of anxiety that stop us from addressing them because we don't have the answer. So don't look, as opposed to we need to look and we need to recognize that we might not be able to fix it, but we can do something about it, but only if we get the collective on board. Mm -hmm. It's not about individual heroes. It's not about solutions out of a packet. It's actually, this is a really kind of pragmatic experimental mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Some societies, some communities have less violence than others. So how come that they do, and what is it that they do that we are not? Can mm -hmm. we learn from them? Mm -hmm. Recognizing that there won't be a best practice here because what happens in Chicago isn't going to happen where we are. We're going to say it's if we look different. at the Netherlands, is yeah, exactly. there are culturally specific, homogeneous exactly. populations. Yeah. So there isn't going to be a fixed solution to this, but there might be a way of ameliorating the problem. Let's mm -hmm. just try that. And recognizing that what we're going to try 
since we don't know whether it's going to work or not, this has to be experimental. We have to be able to say, mm-hmm. that didn't work either. That's okay. We've made lots of mistakes. We're going to make lots of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think that runs into an issue about the way we approach errors and mistakes is part of the problem mm-hmm. because we treat that as failure rather than that's a learning experience mm-hmm. because we don't know the answer by definition. There's going to be lots of failures. But because it's moving in the direction. Yes, but, but sometimes you don't even know if you're going in the right direction. And because most of the time we reward people who are successful and making progress, the thing that I'm suggesting we think about is we don't even know if we're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And so why would we reward people that are going to fail again? And the answer is because we don't know what else to do. Let's just mm-hmm. try something different and see where it goes. So do you have a, a specific methodology? How, If I am a leader, which I am, and I'm working with organizations mm-hmm. and, and they're trying to attack these problems, mm-hmm. where would they start? So... First thing that I would do is get them to understand the typology that I, that, that I uh, work with, which is to differentiate between 10 wicked and critical problems. Wicked ones mm-hmm. we just talked about, 10 ones are the ones we now had to fix. Mm-hmm. Critical ones are ones where you have a crisis and we haven't got time to discuss this. The house is on fire. Mm-hmm. We're, not having a, we're not having a meeting about this. Right. Getting you out of the house. So you have the, um, management, con- management leadership and command, 10 wicked and critical problems. So then when you've got these problems, this typology sorted out. Mm-hmm. What we're going to focus on probably is the wicked problems that we don't know how to address. And by and large, we, we know that there isn't a standard answer or a process mm-hmm. for these kinds mm-hmm. of problems. But we do know that probably somebody somewhere has made better progress than you have made or I have mm-hmm. made. So what is it that they've done that we might be able to learn from? Mm-hmm. And are there answers already in the organization to the problem we're looking at, but we're not looking for the answers in the right place? So conventionally, we look for answers upwards to bosses or outwards to external business consultants. Mm-hmm. And quite often, some of the best solutions to these problems already exist in the organization, mm-hmm. but they're a much lower level. And we don't look downwards for solutions. Mm-hmm. We look upwards for solutions. So. It, it may well be that there are people in the organization that know how to address this problem, but we're not asking them mm-hmm. because they get employed to run the line rather than give us the answer. Mm-hmm. So quite often the answers are uh, in the organization to some extent. And if they're not, then at least if you get people involved on a collaborative level, then collectively we might have a better understanding of what the problem actually is. Because mm-hmm. I think quite often people at the top of the organizations think they know what the problem is, but they rarely go to the bottom of the organization mm-hmm. to see what the manifestation is at that level. It might be quite different. And they're cross-sector. Absolutely. So many of these things are, are cross-sector, cross-silo, and it's often in the interest of leaders not to address them mm-hmm. because they're either so long-term, either on a political cycle mm-hmm. or an organizational cycle. So if the problem we're looking at is Say, let's just say it probably take us 10 years to address this particular problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you and I are going to be out of here in two years. Why would we address a problem? There's no incentive for us to address this, either politically or organizationally. So quite often you have to be able to address it in a much more long-term uh, evolutionary approach, pragmatic, experimental, is what we would call a bricoleur approach. A bricoleur is somebody who puts things together to see whether they work or not. Mm-hmm. There's no plan. We know what we're doing now isn't working. Let's try something else, see whether it works. So that notion of bricoleur and uh, often associated with uh, what we would call positive deviance. Mm-hmm. Positive deviance mm-hmm. is yep. about recognizing there are 
people in the organization that know how to fix these problems. So those kinds of the techniques that we're looking at and trying to unearth the kind of cultural capital and the knowledge in the organization and not go straight away to the top or the outside to look for solutions. That's just, there is probably somebody knows how to fix this. But for whatever reason, they are not telling us. So how can we get the information out of them? Or they're telling us and we're not listening. Yeah, quite often. That's a very common phenomenon. It's what we call um, Prozac leadership. So my colleague David Conson has written a paper called Prozac leadership. And his argument is, by and large, because most organizations are blame cultures, Uh the top rarely knows what the hell is going on in the organization. Well, because no one tells them. Because the organization is so good at burying bad news, (laughs) errors, and mistakes. So the top rarely even understands there is a problem. And then if someone dares to say that actually there's a problem, they're either squashed or they're ignored or we rationalize that as um, that's, just a, that's just a short-term issue. As a mm-hmm. burden, this is actually a long-term problem. So all those kinds of things operate to inhibit us from understanding what the problem is or recognizing how we might transcend it, how we might get to grips with it. And it, it's also locked into a, 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 an aspect of this, which is there might not be a solution to this. So... We know, I mean, I don't know any society which is large-scale or long-lived that doesn't have crime. So if your target is zero crime, you are wasting your time and my time. Mm -hmm. But we can make crime better or worse, Mm -hmm. depending on what we do. So that that recognition that there isn't a solution to this, Mm -hmm. there's just better or worse ways of developing it, is part of the aspect of the wicked problem. So how how we understand the world and how we approach it is a really important function of this, whether we're going to make any progress or not. So that's back to data and facts and interpreting them rationally. Well, yes and no. So we also know that people are very good at rationalizing the things that they've just done so that they don't interpret the data in a particular kind of way. We also know there was quite a lot of research on beyond the rational. So the rationalization argument would be this. Uh, you're driving along, come across a car crash, you pull the driver out, their legs are all mangled, and you say things like, oh my God, I hope you're all right. And they say things <laughs> like, I'm so lucky I could have been killed. Well, that isn't lucky, friend. Lucky is not having a crash in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we rationalize where we end up and make the good, you know, this is a kind of glass half full all the time. So the fact that your partner has just left you, well, there's plenty more fish in the sea. It's that kind of rationalization, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So we do that a lot. And we also interpret data in particular kinds of ways. One of my, um, there's a current piece of research, and I can't remember the name of the author. But it's a, a kind of thousand people are interviewed. They're all Americans and they're assessed, first of all, on their political allegiances from conservative Republicans mm-hmm. to liberal Democrats. And they're also assessed on their mathematical ability. Then the first quarter is given a ratio sum to work out mentally. Mm-hmm. And the, the question is, does this, uh, the sun cream improve your skin or make it worse? The answer is fairly difficult to do. It's a ratio problem. A third of the population get this right, and it correlates exactly with people got good mathematical skill, mm-hmm. nothing to do with politics. Yeah. The second quarter is then given the same data, but the answer is flipped. The sun cream gets the skin worse rather than the better mm-hmm. is reversed. Mm-hmm. Same response, a third get it right, and it's the third with good mathematical skill, nothing to do with politics. Mm-hmm. The second half, either quarter three and quarter four, are then given the same data, the same numbers, but the question is changed from scun- uh, sun cream to do concealed handguns make your city safer or more dangerous? And then the fourth quarter is given the same data, but the answer is changed to, yes, it makes it more dangerous, or no, it makes Mm -hmm. it less dangerous. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, who gets this second set of sums right? And it's got 
almost nothing to do with mathematical ability. It's to do with political preference. So if you're a conservative Republican, you get the sum right that says, actually, it's better to have concealed unbends. And if you're a liberal Democrat, it gets the opposite one right. What's happening is your political preferences are biasing your attempt to read the data. When the question is, can we persuade people with data? The answer is, well, mm, I'm not so sure about this because what we do is, A, we rationalize what we've just done, mm-hmm. and B, our political preferences inhibit us from seeing the data. So this is really difficult now because when, you when you're persuade, trying to persuade people to change their minds, mm-hmm. we know that people are not necessarily persuaded by the data because their political preferences prevent them from either seeing the data or understanding it as not being biased or they find some rationalization mm. for why they don't believe it. So what do we do about that? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Because <laughs> conventionally, what we would then say in response to this, well, these questions are so complex that what we should be doing is not giving it to the population. We should be giving it to experts. Okay. But experts are as, as politically biased. I was just thinking, yes. yeah, the people you interviewed yeah. are... Yeah, so there actually isn't an answer to this, but what this does do is explain... Why it is so difficult to get people to change their minds about things which are so deeply part of their identity or their preference system. And then when you think, well, yeah, but if we give you all the data, surely that would persuade you. And the answer is it probably wouldn't. Now, this would explain why people vote in patterns which are related much more to tribal affiliations than they are mm-hmm. to rational assessments of the political program that's being supported by the political party. And it's not as if there's a bias to the left or the right. It's a bias right across. Mm-hmm. So actually, you, you end up with a, with a situation where, A, you can't really then make much progress with these kinds of problems. But B, that explains why you can't make much progress mm-hmm. with these kinds of problems and why it's so difficult to get people to change their minds. It seems like the study then of brain science and how brains operate would help us untangle this. I don't know. That is an area, since I don't have a brain, that's way... <laughs> Well, you seem to have quite a high-functioning brain. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's it. that would be a tame solution to a wicked problem. The assumption mm-hmm. that if we could just work out what the brain was doing, somehow that would give us access to these kinds of it. I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about brain science or brain research to be able to respond one way or the other, but I would, I would worry about whether that's just, again, mm-hmm. a way of reducing our anxiety that eventually mm-hmm. if we keep going in this direction, we'll find an answer, as opposed to we will probably uncover even more reasons why we don't get we persuaded. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least we would understand better maybe, the situation, maybe. I would hope. Yeah. That doesn't change the fact that brains operate the way brains operate. Yeah. And there may not be a solution to why that is. What would you like listeners to take away from this conversation? I think there is there is something in here about recognizing when we don't know the answers to problems and being comfortable with that level of anxiety and not necessarily seeking out the answer and not punishing people that make mistakes when they're trying to seek out the answer and actually being a bit more collaborative and recognizing some problems. You don't need an expert because there isn't an expert response to this. What you do need to get is to get the collective on board to think about what we might do collectively to address these kinds of problems recognizing that we might not be able to fix it, but we might stop it getting worse. And then I should have both Democrats and Republicans in those groups of people (laughs) so their biases cancel each other out. (laughs) Something like that. Thank you so much for sharing your... I I realize there's no way to get a lifetime worth of 
accomplishments and research into a handful of minutes. But I do appreciate you sharing just a high-level view of what you're interested in working on now. You're very welcome. If someone wanted to learn more about your research, where would they find you? It. Uh, if you go into the Warwick Business School website at Warwick University in the UK, you'll dig me out of there and then get my email and get my, my materials from there. Okay, perfect. Good. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.